Father, we thank you again for an opportunity to consider your word, think about our lives in light of the gospel. Pray today you would be at work in us by way of your spirit, that we would always be sensitive to want to learn and grow, to examine ourselves in the light of your word, and to continue to be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. Bless us, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The title of my topic here as we begin our discussion of sin is Ugly at Sin. Uh, and so we want to talk about some of the implications and ramifications of sin. Romans 7:13. Sin, that it might appear to sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Uh, sometimes, I don't know about you, when I read uh, verses like that, it's a little confusing at first, but uh, stop and think about what he is saying here is, I already have sin that's at work in me doing its damage, and then God brings his word, his pure, holy word, and shines a light on it so that it becomes more apparent, it becomes more obvious, it becomes uh, more painful, if you will, I'm able to see it in a way that perhaps I couldn't see it before. It exposes the reality of that sin that was there already doing its damage and work. Two things are central to the Trinity. Before there was before the creation came, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit lived in in an eternal communion of love. That's how we can describe the Trinity. This mutual love, uh, communion with one another and the three persons of the Trinity. And the triune God then chose to expand that communion or that community of love when he created the world and he created mankind. We were made to love him. We were made to love one another and to live in communion with one another. We were to be fruitful and multiply and then fill the earth with more God, uh, uh, image, bearer, image bearers of God who would then also live in loving communion. So this loving communion is going to expand to fill the earth. Paradise before the fall was a place of perfect loving communion. It was a perfect community. God, man, woman, creation, everything was beautiful. Genesis 3.17, then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. So, so when sin enters, we see not only does it affect man himself, but we see it affects the entire creation. The entire environment is impacted by sin. We read in Romans 8.20 20 and 22, For the creation was subjected to futility. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. We know that at some point it will be liberated because of the redemption of Christ. But even now, the, the whole earth, the, the whole environment, the whole, instead of paradise, we live in this groaning earth that is suffering because of the curse, which is due to sin. God also made the laws uh, when he created us. He, he made laws that would establish and maintain that loving communion. So he made us, he made the world, and he made the rules 
to say, if you'll, do, if you'll do this, if you'll follow what I say, if you'll follow me and keep my word, you'll maintain that loving communion. And so that was why he gave his law. He put it in our hearts. Later it's written on tablets of stone. We have the Bible. And so God's word is there in order for this loving communion to function properly. Sin is always the disruptor of communion because it always transgresses the boundaries. If this were the end of our story, uh, that God created the world and he created us good and and he gave us these boundaries and rules, then we could say they lived happily ever after. But the devil wants to destroy both love and communion. It is a general principle that from the beginning, the devil wants to come between us and God. He wants to disrupt that communion. He also likes to come between husbands and wives and parents and children and relatives and friends and neighbors. He likes to destroy. His philosophy is divide and conquer. He and his minions work full time to disrupt our communion with God with one another. And this is why he must constantly be resisted by you and me. He wants to break communion in your family. He wants to destroy communion in your church. Paul warns, don't give a place, don't give an opportunity for the devil. He does, he, uh, the devil does this by separating us, putting something between us and God, something between us and one another, And that separation is death. Think about when someone dies physically, they don't cease to exist. But they are separated from us physically. We can't talk to them, we can't communicate with them, there's no communion. It's death. We have that picture in physical death. But remember, that person who died didn't cease to exist. They still exist. But we just are cut off from them. That's what death is. It's separation. And so, the same is true for relationships. Sin kills. God said, the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And so Adam and Eve were cut off from God. They were separated. What did they do? They hid themselves. They used to walk with God in the garden, and now they're hiding from God. And so when man fell, it wasn't wasn't just the individual souls of Adam and Eve that were affected, but rather we're going to see this impact of sin is going to go to their children and their children's children, and indeed the whole creation. Everything is impacted by this. And so their relationship with God, with one another, and the whole creation is destroyed by sin. Sin is the failure to maintain covenant. That is, a loving communion with God and with others. Thus, when Adam sinned, he died. Death or separation from God and the covenant ensued immediately upon Adam and and his act of unbelief. So remember, the covenant, that is God's word, defines our place in the community. And when we don't keep our domain, we don't stay in our place, we're not where God says we should be. Think of it as a train on the tracks. Where is a train most free? On the tracks or off the tracks? On the tracks. So when we don't stay where God intended for us to be in terms of our relationship to him, our relationship to one another, 
when that happens, then we've left our domain. What happened to the angels who left their domain? What's the word we use? They fell. They, God, they, they fell from heaven with Satan. They, they were out of their place. So Adam and Eve were now cut off from the source of life. That is the covenant, the relationship with God. Genesis 3.8, again, when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So sin wrecks this beautiful house, this beautiful place of communion. The community was disrupted. Adam forfeited everything. One sin. One sin forfeited everything. Was that a good deal? I hope that was a good piece of fruit. Because it was a costly piece of fruit. By the way, every other sin is just like that. It looks so good. Man, it looks tasty. But the cost is enormous. And so, man's greatest need then was restored communion with God and with men. He's now cut off from the covenant, which is life. In essence, he was alone. He was alienated from God. He was alienated from the creation. And he was alienated from others. Everything is now ugly. The communion is a wreck. Westminster Confession 6.2 By this sin they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. That's what sin does. It's not a little thing. Listen to that again. Became dead in sin, wholly defiled in all parts and faculties of soul and body. Every problem that you have, that you've ever had, or that you ever will have, is the result of sin. It's due to sin. Every sorrow, every misery, every problem the world has is due to sin. Every murder, every theft, every adultery, every war, Sin is the root cause of all of that. And so we have to remember that a covenant is not a thing. It is a relationship. And it is always about love, which is about self-sacrifice, giving to others. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's what love is about, about giving of yourself for others. So... It's always a communion is always about love, uh, love and communion. About that is about community, and so at the top of our list, our greatest priority in life, the thing that will make you the happiest, is communion. Communion with God, and communion with others. And by the way, that's why in our liturgy, at the apex of our liturgy, is communion. We begin the first day of every new week. The Resurrection Day, not the weekend, the week beginning, we gather with all God's people 
who've been redeemed by Christ, who've got our sins forgiven, we got a clean slate, and we gather at the family table, the place of communion, to eat together as a sign that we are joining together to follow Christ, to stay in covenant with Him, to return to paradise, to return to that place of love and communion. And then to walk out the doors and take it to our house and to do it at our tables with our husbands and wives and children and neighbors and the community, the, the places that God has spread us about in the world to be light, to show the world. How will the world know that we're disciples of Christ? We have love for one another. We have loving communion. How do we do that? We've got to get sin out of the way. We confess our sins. Our sins are forgiven. You receive the absolution. All that's the liturgy, the practice, but then you go do that seven days a week at your house, wherever you go. So connect those in your mind when you go to worship. And so, sin is part of the common experience of mankind. Therefore, uh, it grabs the attention of all those who don't deliberately close their eyes to it. Now, some people dream of the essential goodness of man and speak perhaps indulgently of weaknesses for which, of course, man is not responsible. He's just in an evolutionary process. But as time goes on and all measures of external reform fail, such views eventually lead to real disillusionment. It is an inescapable fact that man has some kind of a deep malady. Everyone knows something is wrong. We are constantly confronted not merely with the problem of our sins, that is, of separate sinful deeds, but with much greater and deeper, the much greater and deeper problem of sin, that is, an evil that is inherent in the human heart. Ecclesiastes 7.20, For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. An English theologian and pastor wrote a book that was originally published in 1669. It was uh, as uh, the title was originally published as Sin, the Plague of Plagues, and later retitled The Sinfulness of Sin. Uh, Ralph uh, Benning, uh, he opens that book with this statement. It cannot but be extremely useful to let men see what sin is. How prodigiously vile, how deadly, mischievous, and therefore how monstrously ugly and odious a thing it is. As a pastor of nearly 35 years, I too have come to see more and more the destruction and the devastation that sin can cause. It is so, so, so costly. It brings such misery and heartache for generations, not just in, not just in the moment, but the, the spillage, the overflow, the ripple effects of sin are unbelievable. In fact, if we could see that ahead of time, so, so many times when people are in the midst of the aftermath, they're, they're realizing what I've done and what's, what, what havoc we've created, but it's too late. And that's why we're called, God gives us the opportunity in his work to see ahead of time, to pull the curtain back. The devil wants to keep the curtain pulled. He wants to just show you the shiny object. 
he wants to uh, he, he doesn't he wants to show you the bait, but not that big hook that's inside of it. And so we like fish go for the bait, and then we are hooked, and it's too late. Sin always comes disguised and made up and covered up. It's deceptive. And while we might know that something is wrong or sinful, we often have a very simple, narrow, or blurred view of it. Sin always promises a good payoff in profit or pleasure, but sin is always far costlier than we thought. Sin is, put it this way, sin is always a bad deal. Everybody's trying to sell you something all the time. Everybody's trying to sell you something all the time. The devil's always trying to sell you something. He only has things that are a bad deal. And the problem is, we are impulse buyers. You know what impulse buying is, right? All that stuff that's right by the cash register at Walmart, you weren't going to buy, and you throw one in the basket. Okay? The law of God is good. It's perfect. It's the standard. It's not the it's not the it's not the law, but the sin that leads to separation and death. And death is the ugliest thing of all. So what is sin? It's whatever's contrary to the nature of God. And the law of God is a transcript of God's character. It's the it's God's word, which is consistent with who He is. Most of you know the Westminster Shorter Catechism answer to the question, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. In other words, sin is doing what God says not to do or not doing what God says to do. There are sins of omission and commission. God's law is about love. Love for God, love for our neighbor, and even love for ourselves. In other words, God's law is for our good and sin is contrary to God and men. When we violate the law of God, when we sin, we are attempting to do just what Adam and Eve did. What what did Satan tell them? You'll be like who? God. Guess what you're doing every time you sin? Every time I sin, say, I want to be God. I don't want God to be God. I want to dethrone God and I want to enthrone myself. Sin is therefore high treason against God. It's an overthrow of his government. We're criminals in the universe of God. We don't want God telling us what to do. Every prodigal who leaves his father's house in effect says, I think it would be better to be somewhere else than here. Sin says that God isn't wise, that he's not sufficient, and that he's not loving. Sin says that it knows better than God. It says that God doesn't see or he doesn't regard what I'm doing. And so every time you sin, even if it's just for a moment, you become an atheist. You act for a moment as though God didn't exist and that you're God. See, I want us to begin to understand the nature of sin, to see how serious it is and what's really going on. We want to minimize it. We want to make light of it. Sin has contempt for God's love, and it is ugly. Again, Ralph Venning wrote, 
All God's works were good exceedingly, beautiful even to admiration. But the works of sin are deformed and monstrously ugly, for it works disorder, confusion, and everything that is abominable. So man was made in the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Man was beautiful. Sin defaced that image and made it ugly. The devil knew in his temptation of our first parents that there's, he knew that their, their sin could never make them like God. That's not what he told them, right? He lied, but he knew he was lying. Sin instead made them like devils. 1 John 3.8, he who sins is of the devil. John 8.44, you are, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, his own nature, For he is a liar and the father of it. So sin turns out to be contrary to man. To you. Whatever is contrary to God is contrary to man. Communion with God is our ultimate good. Sin always breaks communion. Sin deceives, it distorts, it separates, it corrupts, it kills. Even little sins. Sin moves by small degrees, little by little, inching us toward the cliff. I'm not going to fall. And so we inch, again, closer and closer. Thought sins are root sins. Matthew 15, 19, For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, Adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies, all started as false sins. All the ugliness and suffering in the world and in your life, as I said, is due to sin. Like the angels who fell from their estate in glory with God, so too man's sin takes him down and your sins take you down. So sin breaks communion with God. I'm going to talk about the impacts of sin now very briefly. First, it breaks communion with God. Jesus said what? If you love me, you keep my commandments. So if you're not keeping his commandments, you're not loving him. So love is affected. The first thing love, uh, sin does is show contempt for God. Romans 8, 7 and 8. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be, so then... Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Sin alienates you from the life of God, and you are described as, in Ephesians 2, dead, cut off in your trespasses and sins. God is angry with the wicked every day, Psalm 7.11. Isaiah said, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. You see how communion is broken? Sin has come between you and God. And like Adam and Eve who did themselves who hid themselves from God, we do the same. First John one six, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
oh, I go to church, I believe in Jesus, I do all that. Now, I'm living a totally different way. Then you're a liar. You're not following Jesus. So sin breaks communion with God, and sin breaks communion with our neighbors. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? When you sin, you always hurt other people. You say, well, yeah, well, I was alone in my bedroom with the lights out. You still hurt other people. Because you're never alone. God made you to be in communion. You're connected to other people. You have obligations to other people. And when you're not godly, and when you're not following God, and when you're not righteous, when you're being sinful, you're hurting yourself, and you're breaking relationship with God, which inevitably, inescapably, hurts other people. We hurt them directly when we sin. Sometimes with violence. Sometimes with our words, lying, gossip, immorality, theft. There's many, many ways we directly hurt other people. But we also hurt them indirectly. For example, who is hurt by adultery? Well, God is, because you bear his image. And you're telling a lie about him. He's faithful, and you're not. How about you? Does it hurt you? How about your reputation, your job? How about a divorce or your health? We could add to that. How about the person you committed adultery with? A husband, a wife, the children, the extended family, the church, the neighbors? We could go on. These are just condensed lists here. And then what about other effects like pregnancy, disease, guilt, shame, depression, cover-up? Sin is the opposite of love. Because love is about self-sacrifice and sin is always about selfishness. Sin is the opposite of love, which means, again, it's selfish. It's not giving. It always breaks communion. It always creates tension. It always creates conflict. You cannot sin and it not affect others. You are always connected. You represent the church. When you sin, you take all of us with you. When I sin, I take you with me. You know this if you live in a family because you've seen it and you've heard it. If any member of the family is sinning, it impacts everybody else. You ever seen, seen that situation where somebody's in trouble and everybody else kind of scatters? The, you know, okay, I'm going to my room. Okay, I don't want to be. I, I don't want to be here now because this is not pleasant. It's ugly. What does sin do to you? In the Reformed faith, we understand the Bible teaches that man is totally depraved. That is, sin has affected every part of you. Now, he isn't utterly depraved, not as bad as he possibly can be in every area, but no part of you escapes unscathed by sin. Your body, we're described as blind and deaf and lame, Obviously, we're all, you know, we start dying as soon as we're born in some ways. That's our destiny. How about your mind, your thoughts, your understanding? Isaiah 1, 5 through 6, the whole head is sick. 
the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. How about the heart? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17.9 Sin has caused pain and sorrow and suffering. Sin is the cause of guilt and shame and poor health and anxiety and fear and depression and perversion and fatigue and bitterness and hatred. And we can probably open this up and come up with several more to add to that list. And after we've sinned, we're quick to want to justify it or call it something else. That's how we try to deal with it in the wrong way. You don't like it when someone calls you a liar or a thief, even though you have lied, right? And you have stolen. Every sin is a form of theft, taking something that doesn't belong to you. So you are a liar. And you are a thief. Well, I don't like you to call me a liar. I'm not a liar. I just lie. Right? This is the way, Proverbs 30, 20. This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wickedness. There's nothing wrong with this. Again, Ralph Benning describes it this way. Men disguise sin. For surely, were they to call it by its own name and look it in the face... They know they should find it such an ugly hag as was not fit for the embraces of men, no, not even of devils. The practice of giving new names to sin um, uh, is, is the common practice. They cannot endure to be called by the names of the sin which they have committed and which they practice. No drunkard likes to be so called, but takes it for a disgrace. How dare you call me that? No liar will receive the lie when given him, uh, but as an affront. No adulterer will own that name. Now, whoever follows a lawful and honest trade or calling is not ashamed of its name. For example, a shoemaker. You mind If you make shoes, do you mind being called a shoemaker? Not at all. But sin is such an ugly, base employment that those who commit sin will not endure being called sin makers, though that is their trade. Sin puts our eyes out. It turns us into fools. Fools laugh and jest at sin. You ever done that? Have friends that do that? Thought it was funny? To do evil, Proverbs 10.23, is like sport. To a fool. Fools despise wisdom and instruction, Proverbs 1 7. It never turns out, though, like we thought it would. Again, Venning says, Men think they are going to plead to, to pleasure and profit, honor and happiness, but alas, they are mistaken and are going to pain and loss, to disgrace and death. Do you remember how Amnon lusted? after his sister Tamar and plotted and he ultimately raped her. The very thing 
that he wanted so badly. Remember, he, he wouldn't eat. He wanted her so badly. What do we read? Second Samuel thirteen fifteen. Then Amnon, this is afterwards, hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise, be gone. I have a, an illustration on the other end of that for me. When I was a teenager, I worked in a store and I stole a framed picture of a lion that I liked. I didn't need to steal that. Took it home, hung it up in my bedroom for three days. And I could not stand to look at it. Now, instead of taking it back and confessing my sin, I destroyed it. Because there was no pleasure in it. That's the way sin is. Sin is so disappointing. False joy, real misery. The key features of sin is that it is deceptive and the first person it deceives is us. Hebrews 3, 12-13 Beware, brethren. Well, when the Bible says beware, pay attention. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart. These are brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, breaking fellowship with the living God, breaking communion with Him, but exhort one another daily while it is called a day, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You know, people don't just wake up one day and run jump off the cliff. Nobody plans to fall off the cliff. How do they get there? One inch at a time with presumption. I can handle it. I've got this. It isn't going to happen to me. I know, I know where the cliff is. I'm good. I'm good. And we get closer and closer, and a little puff of wind comes up and blows us off the edge. And the first thing we say is, I didn't mean to. But you've got to mean not to. That's, your, that's what we're called to do, is to mean not to. You know what? If I'm where I can't fall off, guess what? I won't fall off. If I'm never where it can happen, it won't happen. But if I allow myself to be where it can happen, it will. And sometimes that's because of who I'm hanging out with. If hanging, if hanging out with your friends ends up leading you to sin, then you need some new friends. Now I have, th- what I want to wrap up with today in this talk is, I have three lists, I think. Yep. Ten ways sin deceives. First, it persuades us that it's not a sin. Isn't that what the devil said to Eve? Nothing wrong with this. It looks good. God just doesn't want you to enjoy this. And she looked at it. looked good. So she called evil good. So we redefine sin. Second, special pleading. It's a sin for others, but it's not for me. I can handle this. 
I can do this thing without harm, without it affecting me like it might some weaker person. Number three, one sin, only one, only once. It's not who I am, it's just, I'm going to make an exception this time. It's just a little thing. Number four, it's only a little sin. You've got all these categories. I don't, I don't do big sins. I just do little sins. Number five, it's a private sin, and it won't hurt anyone else. We've already talked about why that's not true. You're not private. You weren't made to be private. You're connected. Number six, it promises great pleasure and profit. Somebody said, I can resist everything but temptation. It's tempting because it offers something. At least it promises something. Now, it never delivers. It always falls short. There's the, it's the worm in every apple of pleasure. Others do it. Everybody else is doing it. Can't be that bad. They seem to be getting away with it. They're having fun. That's probably one of the greatest temptations. We just see the world doing all kinds of things. It looks like they're partying. They're having fun. Um, anybody see the movie Apocalypto? Mm-hmm. Uh, Mel Gibson movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it's based on the primitive tribe of the Incas. But he actually based it upon America. And he kind of just translated it into these other images, this ancient civilization. But there's this great scene where one tribe has captured another tribe. And all the women have been... Uh, gathered up, and they're now being auctioned off to be sexual slaves to other men, and they're bidding. It's like a real auction. But there's this one woman uh, who's older, and she you can tell from seeing her that when she was younger, she was very beautiful, but now she's older. And when the auction's over, everybody walked away, and she was left standing there all by herself. And I read an article where Mel Gibson said, that's Hollywood. We'll, we want you very badly, as long as you have something to give us. But the minute we're tired of you, we will throw you away. And we'll get some more to replace you. Y'all are all too young. Some of you older guys might remember um, Victoria Jackson. was a comedian on Saturday Night Live, blonde. And she's a Christian and she actually, I heard an interview with uh, Eric in Texas um, with her, and she had actually dated Donald Trump once when she was in her prime. And I think, or I say they dated, actually did a photo shoot or something. He had posted Saturday Night Live, and she said, well, he was pleasant, but he, and got, anyway, Metaxas asked her if he'd ask you to marry him, because he wasn't married, he was between wives at that time. And he, had he asked you to marry him, what? What, what would you say? She said, I, I could never marry him. Um, he's not a Christian. And uh, she said, uh, he would have, I would have aged out by now for him. I needed a man that would love me after my mastectomy and when I lost all my hair. And she said, I have 
The world is full of lies and promises and dreams and things that make things look attractive and big. How about this one? I can repent and God will forgive me. I'm going to go ahead and do it. And then I know that two minutes after I became an atheist, I'm going to be a believer again. And I'm going to ask God to forgive me. And he said he would forgive me, right? So he has to. And so I'll just go ahead and sin. And and then that may lead to, uh, oh, I'm only human. That's another one. I'm just a sinner. Just poor me. I can't help it. Or, number ten, I've gotten, I've gotten away with it before. I want you to think about that a minute. Is that a good thing that you got away with it? Or that you think you got away with it? What if you don't get caught? Where is that going to lead? What you think about getting caught actually is a mercy of God. Because to not get caught means you're going to do it again and again and again until it kills you or somebody else. Ten ways, another list, that we compound sin. You see, we're always trying to manage sin. James 1, 14-15, But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So we have this picture of this progressiveness in sin, or digression in sin, if you will. So what happens? How do we compound sin? You ever lie to cover up sin? You know what David did with Bathsheba? He did other things, right? It leads to other sins. What happened with David? He tried to manage it and tried to cover it up, but that didn't work. So what, what did he do with Uriah? Murdered him. Murdered him. Had him murdered. Plotted. So one sin led to another and another and another. So that's the second. Lying to cover up sin. Number two, we compound sin because one sin leads to other sins. Sins almost always come in groups. We compound it by following others in sin. My friends are doing it, so I'll do it. Have you ever think about it? Have you ever committed a sin that you wouldn't have committed if you'd been by yourself or if you'd been with some other people who weren't doing that, but you did it because everybody else was doing it? Number four, justifying sin. We compound sin. So we, we have our excuses and our reasons and why it was really okay and it wasn't that bad and so forth. Or how about just concealing sin? Not going to mention it. Is it a compounding of sin to not grieve over sin? To treat it lightly? To try to forget it like I talked about last night? To pretend uh, like it never happened? Number seven... Being an accessory to other people's sins compounds sin. So I'm not going to tell, because I don't want to be a snitch, right? I don't want to tell on anybody and get them in trouble. I think I'd prefer to let them keep on sinning. That's a lot better. Number eight, approving of or consenting to sin. Number nine, making light of sin, joking about it or... Treating it as not that big a deal. 
And number 10, defending or excusing sin. Maybe you're excusing someone else's sin. Well, they, again, maybe they can't help it, or they've had a hard life, or they were having a hard day, or, um, you know, we've come up with all... Why, why are we motivated to want to justify other people's sins? It justifies mine. And if I don't judge you, then you can't judge me, right? If I can't have an assessment of your behavior, then and that's the world we live in. Nobody judges anybody. You don't tell me what to do, I won't tell you what to do. You can do the most heinous thing as long as I can do the most heinous thing. We have kind of have a pact. You don't, you don't come after me and I won't come after you. So I'll conclude with, and we're going to have a Q&A here when we're done, so uh, ten remedies for sin. And before I get there, let me just kind of wrap up this part on the ugliness of sin. Again, as a pastor, and all the other pastors I know here can testify to this. Some of you can. Some of you have seen it firsthand. All the big sins started out as little sins. Little by little, day by day. And so, the devastation that comes about. And almost everybody, when they get to that part, where the devastation is starting to, the curtain has now been pulled back and we're starting to see. First of all, we almost never see the full impact right away. We might see what's right in front of us. And then tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next week and the next month, it, it, it keeps coming in waves. Oh, I didn't think about that. I didn't realize that. I didn't know, oh, and we've watched, you know, some of us have had to deal with suicides because people were so distraught and overwhelmed by what had happened. Our broken families, marriages, estrangements between parents and children, neighbors, churches that split. Well, those are fun. To watch the place that's supposed to be the very picture of loving communion which is either a marriage, which is Christ and the church, or how about Christ and the church? To see it ripped apart. And people who are totally destroyed. And children. And people, you know people, right, who don't go to church anymore? Because they went through something like that somewhere? Who don't have a healthy marriage because their parents didn't? And now we're going to repeat it for a few more generations. Because sin is generational. And I think the scriptures talk about the sins of the fathers being visited on the children in the third and fourth generation. I don't think that's because great-great-grandpa did something and now God is just judging the fourth generation. I think it's very likely what that's talking about is the pattern is great-great-grandpa had a horrible temper and he passed it on to his son and he passed it on to his three kids and then now they're, it's gotten down to the fourth generation. So in our family, the way we deal with conflict is we yell, scream, and throw things until somebody's hurt. That's how sin gets passed down. By the way, that's how righteousness gets passed down too. And so let me just make a note here. This is a bonus. 
when I do premarital counseling, I talk to couples and say, you should hold on to every great thing your family gave you. Every bit of it. No doubt they taught you any number of things that are good. But families are sinful. And you should also look and say, you know what? There's some things that need to change. And when I start my family and my marriage, we're going to change a few things. We're going to get rid of the bad stuff. And we're going to upgrade. And I remember my wife, uh, She, her, her parents died when she was young. But she said, my mother yelled a lot. And she said, I'm not going to be a yeller. And those of you, you know, my wife, know that's true. In 45 years of marriage, I think I heard her yell twice. And she instantly caught herself. And uh, she said, I don't want to import that into our family. So you can do that. That's sanctification. That's growth. You don't have to repeat the sins of your parents. But you will, if you don't self-consciously, come before God and, and ask for help. And that's what we're going to talk about here in this last thing. Remedies. Things that will help you overcome our, your sinful tendency. So first and foremost... Hide God's word in your heart. The Bible sitting on the shelf at your house will not help you in temptation. Figure out your three biggest temptations and memorize two passages of scripture to go with each of those temptations. I like the Navigator's topical memory system uh, that uh, has a topic you say the reference, you memorize the verse, get it perfect, not, no paraphrases, and then say the reference again, and say it every day for six weeks, and you'll never forget it. Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart out, the topic is the word, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. Then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, then thou shalt have good success, Joshua 1.8. I memorized that when I was 17. And a whole bunch of others. That's with me all the time. Who wants to know the will of God? 1 Thessalonians 4. 3. This is the will of God. That you abstain from sexual immorality. And it goes on. So I have all my premarital couples memorize that. And it's with you. It's with you when you're alone. It's with you wherever you are. So that that's a tool. That's a powerful weapon. But it's in Psalm 119, 911. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his ways by taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Number two, meditate on good things. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. I just ask the question rhetorically, do you meditate at all? 
you ever just have some time alone? I'm going to sit down. I want to think about some things. I want to think about some lovely things. I want to think about what God made. I want to think about the blessings that God's given me. I want to think about my goals as a Christian. I want to just think. So meditation. Pray. Matthew 26, 41. Jesus said, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You can't do this by yourself, but God has given you his Holy Spirit. Number four, keep good company. 1 Corinthians 15, 33-34. Do not be deceived. Here's another one of those warnings. Beware. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some... Do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. The company you keep, one of the most important things. Number five, confess your sins. We've talked about this already a couple of times. First John 1, 8 and 9. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth's not in us. But if we confess our sins. What is confession? It's just agreeing with God. You're right, God. I disobeyed you. I sin. If you confess your sins, in particular, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins, cancel the death, and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You confess the ones you know about, God will take care of the rest. Confess, you know, that's why we have confession in our liturgy. Not so you can come once a week and be absolved of your sins. This is not a confessional. But it is, we have it in the liturgy as a model for you to recognize that every, all the time, anytime there's sin, you should immediately go and confess to maintain the communion with God. Number six, look away. What do I mean there? Okay. Um, 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lust. But pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And then Job 31.1. I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? Make rules for yourself in light of God's word. Remember I said don't get near the cliff? First of all, you've got to know where the cliff is. Where, where are your temptations? I'm tempted to that. Okay? Maybe somebody else isn't tempted to that. But if you're tempted to that, you do whatever it takes to make sure you're not where you can be tempted to that. That's, I think, what Jesus is talking about when he says, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. Why? Because you'd be better off to enter the kingdom without an eye and without a hand. So does he mean literally pluck your eye out and cut your hand off? I don't think so. I think it's hyperbole. But I think it, what we would say is, I had somebody said, well, you know, I've got my, my phone and my iPad and my computer. And, and I've got the kids have them. I, this is a guy actually telling me this about his kids. And they're having problems. The kids are looking at porn. And he goes, I, 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 I don't know what to do. Do whatever it takes. You mean, like, take away their... Devices? Well, if that's what it takes, if you can't figure out any other way to do it, then absolutely. Cut it off. If you can figure out another way, go for it. I think there are some other ways. And I'm saying to you, 
Don't wait for mom and dad to do it. You're grown-ups now. You're going to have to do it. This is about self-government before God. Make your own rules. I don't go there. I don't do that. And if I don't do that, then I can't fall off the cliff. Everybody says I'm not going to fall off the cliff. I have that rule. No falling off cliffs. But But if I have rules, if I don't have rules that keep me away from the edge of the cliff, I will fall. So you need the rules that keep you away from the edge. If you're never sitting in a dark car with your boyfriend and your girlfriend or alone somewhere else with them, you can't. If you're never there, you can't. Just make the rule. He said it's really inconvenient sometimes. Yeah, it is. It's not nearly as inconvenient as sin. Um, number seven, avoid the appearance of evil. If it even looks bad, don't do it. Okay? Uh, I've got, you know, all kinds of examples. Think, what about modesty in dress? I have a rule. When in doubt, don't. Stand there, look in the mirror. Hmm, should I be wearing this? Probably not, if you have to ask that question. And if you're not sure... Go ask your dad. Dad, what do you think? Is this what a godly young woman should wear? Okay, I'll go change. Winning? Okay, so avoid the appearance of evil. Should I go there with those guys? Well, maybe not. What happens if somebody sees you there? What are they going to think? Okay, you got the idea. Number eight, don't allow little sins. Little sins become big sins. He who is faithful, he who is faithful in what is least, Jesus said, is faithful also in much. Number nine, beware of idleness. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I think a lot of young people, a lot of teenagers, and a lot of young adults get in a lot of trouble just hanging out. I'm not saying you can never hang out. Just, you know, hey, we just got together and hung out and talked. Uh, but if you're spending a lot of time hanging out, you're probably headed for some trouble. Number ten, cultivate the fear of God. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, Proverbs 14:27, to to turn one away from the snares of death. Cultivate an awareness of the presence of God. A lot of these other things we talked about, if you get God's word in your heart and you're praying and you're with godly people, that helps you cultivate that awareness. Remember, you can't become an atheist if God's in the room. You're not if He's there. A lot of sins you wouldn't commit if another person was in the room, much less if God was in the room. So if you've cultivated a constant awareness of his presence, I'll tell two quick stories. My earliest memory was when I was five. And my mom had gone to the hospital to give birth to my little brother. And I got to sleep in bed with my dad. And I remember the conversation we had, or at least one part of it, is he told me, he told me, he says, you know, the one thing I want you to remember all your life is God can always see you. And why, that's a really important lesson for everybody to learn. There's a children's catechism question. Anyway, I know some of you know uh, Chris Schlecht, right? 
Uh, do you know his, you know, Gresham and uh, Morgan? He told this story years ago when they were little. I think Gresham was five and Morgan was three or something like that. May have the ages off, but they were having a quarrel about who had it first, whatever it was, toy. And he said, I came in the room and I, I suspected Gresham was telling the truth and Morgan wasn't. And uh, I asked each one of them who had each one of them said, I had it first. No, I had it first. He said, I had been teaching them the children's catechism. And I, uh, I said, can God, can you see God? And they replied, no, but he can always see me. And he said to Morgan, Morgan, who would God say had it first? And she said, dress him. Cultivating an awareness of God's presence. Wouldn't it change your behavior? You ever been doing something? If some person walked in, you'd stop? Or maybe you'd look to be sure nobody was around? So, we close with this here. Sin will cost you dearly. Now and in the future. Our sins outlive us. They're generational. Sin is worse than we ever imagined. The gospel is way better than we ever imagined. Titus 2, 11-14 For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Father, we thank you for the word. Thank you because it tells the truth about us, about sin, about you, and about what the problem is, and about what needs to be done about it. Help us to pay attention. Help us to take these things to heart. Help us to hate sin. Help us to see how hideous it is, how destructive, how it destroys love and communion. Help us, Lord, to return to paradise through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.